right, everyone. Welcome back to the Wisdom Collective. I'm Adam Crowell, and I'm here this week with John Ravakey. And John, um, I, uh, I, I really don't say this every show. This might be one of the most important shows for what I'm trying to do here, um, because I've called this show the Wisdom Collective, and you are the idea of collective wisdom has kind of been turning about as of late. It's been this popular notion and idea, especially in academic and philosophical circles and all the rest, and yeah. cognitive psychology. But man, you have had uh, the way that you frame it and articulate it has been the clearest to me. And it's, it's really been um, quite formative and informative and all the rest. So um, I, I think this is a super important um, conversation to have for my show and any of my audience, because I think it's going to help us give I hope the clearest definition of what we even mean when we say collective wisdom or wisdom collective right. or whatever. Yeah. So I appreciate you making the time, man. This is awesome. Really, really cool stuff. Uh, well, let me, let me uh, introduce you a little bit though. You're a professor at university of Toronto, right? And yep. uh, working in cognitive psychology and science both. Um, but you do all sorts of things. You do lectures and uh, in classes on Buddhism and, and you've yeah. been doing this thing called the meaning crisis online. So why don't you tell yeah. people about some of this and what you've been up to? Well, first of all, Adam, uh, thank you for inviting me. And um, I, I agreed to come on because uh, I really believe in uh, the project that you're engaged in. So thank you very much for that. Been, as you said, I'm very interested and concerned with this whole issue of collective wisdom. Uh, and I hope we get, get into that very deeply together. Mm -hmm. uh, a little bit about me, uh, as you said, um, I'm a professor um, at, of cognitive psychology and cognitive science at the University of Toronto. Um, I do work um, on, uh, so my, my sort of scientific work is on the nature of intelligence, consciousness, rationality, wisdom, insight, um, and mystical and transformative experiences. So that's where I do sort of the bulk of my work um, as a scientist, but as you said, I also have, I guess, a more existential vocation in which I'm trying to use all of those resources and what I've learned and, uh, um, both uh, theoretically and uh, within an entire ecology of practices uh, to try and help people address what I call the meaning crisis. So I have, as you mentioned, I have a series uh, called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis on YouTube. It's 51 hour episodes, so it's, a, it's very much a, a course, but it's a hard problem. Um, and it's a, it's a major issue, and uh, COVID has really exacerbated it and make it, made it more significant. I saw uh, a statistic the other day, apparently, uh, from the CDC, that um, one in four people uh, aged uh, 18 to 25 is, has seriously considered suicide during COVID crisis. Um, right. So, and there's reasons for why I think COVID crisis has exacerbated the meaning crisis. So I do that. I also have... Uh, I had until the until last week, because of my schedule change, I uh, did a weekly morning uh, meditating with John Raveki class where I taught right. people uh, Vipassana meditation, meta-contemplation, uh, Prajna non-duality, uh, some moving mindfulness practices drawn from Qi Kung, uh, Jan Zheng, Tai Chi Chuan. Um, and, then, uh, and then we have now shifted. We're, uh, we're now doing a, a Saturday morning uh, session and we're going to the Western wisdom traditions. Uh, we're following a book called The Wisdom of Hypatia. So we've done Epicureanism and I've taught them some basic practices there, savoring and philosophical contemplative companionships. And we'll go into Stoicism, mm -hmm. exercises and practices there. And then Neoplatonism, exercises and practices there. And the idea is to give people a really uh, rich repertoire of, uh, of practices, transformative practices, uh, 
uh, and the idea is that people will, and then design principles, you know, yeah. how, to, how, to, how to draw from them so they fit you, they fit your situation, they fit your aspirational pathway um, uh, so that you can cultivate an ecology of practices to address the meaning crisis and cultivate wisdom individually and collectively. Because there's also a community that's built up, a Sangha, on a mm -hmm. Discord server, and they meet, they do these practices. So, you know, building communities, building ecologies of practices, and building the science and having them all talk to each other and hopefully mutually supporting and hopefully consistent and coherent fashion. Um, <laughs> that's, that's what I've been engaged in. I've written a book with Christopher Master Pietro uh, and Philip Misovic um, on how zombies are sort of are the modern cultural expression mm -hmm. uh, of the meaning crisis. Yeah, yeah. And then many articles and, and so on. And then finally, sorry, uh, but oh, you gave me a chance to plug, so I'm going to take it. Yeah. Um, uh, I also have a, and this will be on this, I, I have a regular series uh, where I am doing uh, what I call Dialogos with people, called Voices yeah. with Rebeki. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Meeting with people, uh, trying to do two things, trying to discuss the material that is relevant uh, to the, the projects of individual and collective wisdom, but also trying to exemplify um, what I call dialogos, a way of a practice, an important practice for trying to bring this about. I'm currently writing, uh, 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 editing and writing for an anthology called Inner and Outer Dialogues uh, on exactly mm. uh, this whole project. Uh, okay. So there's a lot I'm doing. That, that's, that's sort of the gist of it, right? Oh, one more thing. Yeah. Got a new, I got a new uh, series out called uh, Untangling the World Not of Consciousness with Greg Enriquez, in which we're trying to go through all of the sort of best current theories about the nature and function of consciousness. So that's yeah. everything is, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's all, it's great stuff though. And it's, uh, it's obviously, uh, well, a lot of this is a culmination of a body of a long, long time of work. It's not like these oh, are yeah. all new things that you're up to. So oh, no, uh, no. yeah, yeah. This is, it sounds like, how do you have enough time for that? But this is, this is you putting a lot of things out there that you've already been doing for a long time, whether in the classroom yeah. or whatever. Yep. Very much, very much. Yeah, I mean that's um, that that's exactly right. It, it you know awakening from the meeting crisis is like two decades worth of work. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so everything. It, it, yeah, there's very much um, my sort of academic profession and my particular vocation. Uh, they really interpenetrate and afford each other, uh, mutually mm -hmm. resonate with each other very powerfully. I'm very, very fortunate for that. I know many people do not have that. Uh, um, I mean, I've worked hard to get here, but nevertheless, I acknowledge that, you know, it's a very, very fortunate situation that I get to be in. And so yeah. um, I and want hobby, to- Hobby, pleasure, like, and, and just, you know, hobby, pleasure, interest, and all that can overlap with work. It is, it's a true gift, like you said. It's, yeah, yeah. It, it's, yeah, it's wonderful when that can happen. And, uh, and, and I, what it does is, um, well, it, it, it's a gift, I like the way you put that, and it motivates me strongly to give back yes. as much as I can, as yeah, much yeah. as I can. Yeah. Well, you're you're unselfish in that respect because you've been putting a lot of things out. So I wanna. I think it might be helpful because um, you have this this way with. Um, I know this is something that Jonathan Paget will say all the time. You have this like way of like putting these. They sound like they're just like terms that are in your head but you'll say them and i'm like that's the perfect way to sum like you said like an ecology of practices or something right like it's like <laughs> that's that's a way to, that's a way to talk about this what we're talking about yeah, and right. so i appreciate all of that um i do think though there's some terms that will be um fresh and or um 
so fresh in that respect, but there'll be some terms that are like brand new to people. They're like, I don't even know what that means. So um, at least um, because this could be interpreted a lot of different ways, let's unpack some terms as we go through this. Please. So please. Uh, the meaning crisis, what is that? What's going on? Uh, that's a huge question, but, but in a gist or like in a, in short fashion, what do you think the meaning crisis is? What, where yeah. are we at? And what are you, obviously you're trying to awaken people from it with this, video series you've been up to, but also these ideas of collective wisdom like we're gonna talk about in a bit. So let's yeah. dive into that a little bit and unpack that. Sure, thank you. Um, so there's two things to say about this. I, I have my, my own particular take on it, but there's, there's, there's also a group of people and there's a family of interpretations around this. And I'll give you mine because that's the one I have responsibility for. Uh, but I want to point out that there, there's a lot of variation, almost like jazz, being done on this mm -hmm. theme because it seems to be resonating with people in very powerful ways. Here's the, the core idea for me, and many people, like I said, are, in, uh, are uh, significantly overlap with this. Um, it's the idea that the very processes that make us adaptive, and so this comes out of the cognitive science, right? The, the, the fact that our cognition is a dynamical self-organizing system that is embedded, it's coupled to the world, and it's constantly moment by moment evolving our sort of cognitive fittedness to the world. And mm -hmm. a lot of that's happening below our awareness, below our conscious uh, project, and it levels deeper than our explicitly or even often implicitly held beliefs. It's, it's, much, it's, a, it's, it's a much more embodied process. Are you, are you, right. Is it comfortable to do like the elephant rider analogy from Height and others? Is that an yeah, okay yeah, way to put yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, yeah. It's yeah. right. And so trying to work out what that elephant is, and I, I talk about different kinds of knowing. We could perhaps get into this at some point, you know, mm -hmm. procedural and perspectival and participatory. And this is coming out of what's called 4E cognitive science, um, sort of cutting edge cognitive science, which is going from thinking of cognition as sort of like, a, like something like a computer that's done in your head this yeah. so something that's like a much more like a dynamical system living things are dynamical systems right it's mm -hmm. a but it's the dynamical system operating between you and the world um and so you're actually coupled to the world um and it and that yeah. that sense of connectedness um which is often very only intuitively and implicitly helped by people but they know it when it's gone like right. if they're in solitude you put them in solitary confinement or if they go to a culture right and then they get culture shock or if a relationship unexpectedly breaks down, they know what, what that loss of connection is, right? right? But, but so they, you know, in a very felt sense, and they, yeah. and they know how deeply important it is. But what I do as a scientist and try and figure out, well, what does that, what's the machine, what's the process? What are the, I'll use the metaphor machinery because I'm a cognitive scientist. What's the machinery underneath that felt? What's it doing and how is it operating? It, it, and it, we can talk about this perhaps, it's what a, a notion I call relevance realization. But the, the point about this is that sense of connectedness is we now also ha have increasing evidence that that's things that strengthen that sense of connectedness to yourself, to each other, and to the world, that enhances your sense of meaning in life. Hmm. Right? That's, that's, so that's not the meaning of You would see it as like life. triformative though, like yourself, yeah. you, you said yourself, others in the world, right? Okay. Yeah. And those are all interconnected, all interconnected. And in fact, uh, when people talk about Okay, so I just want to be clear. When I'm talking about meaning in life, I'm talking not talking about whether or not you think what's the meaning of life, like some philosophical pronouncement. I'm talking about what are the patterns and the processes in your life that make your life worth living to you so that the inevitable suffering 
failure and finitude we come up against, you can still say it's worth it. That's yes. what I'm talking about when I'm talking about meaning in life, right? Yeah. And, and, and interestingly enough, our culture, it's not totally wrong, but our culture has reduced that to the notion of a purpose, right? That's in my life's purpose. Um, and, and again, having a sense of purpose is, is one way in which we get the connection, but it turns out it's not actually the most important way. Uh, maturing, uh, which is sen sensing that you are connected to something larger than yourself outside of your own sort of egocentric interest, that seems to be very, very... So in the end, um, when you ask people, you know, what made their life worth living, they generally don't, well, they, not, that, not that they don't ever, but so I'm talking probabilities. They're yeah, much yeah. more likely to say this relationship, right? Or, or, right, or, or, or right, or, or, you know, uh, belonging to this place rather than I achieved this goal or this title, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so let's, let's, so let's gather. You've got this process, this connectedness, and it's really important to meaning in life. And it works largely intuitively, implicitly in this really dynamical, self-organizing fashion. But here's the thing. And I mean, so I've got lots of arguments and evidence for that, what I'm, what I'm about to say, but I'll just give you the sort of summary. Yeah, that, yeah. that process, that very adaptive process is also, also makes you perpetually vulnerable to self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. Mm -hmm. Right, it's dynamically and self-organizing, right, uh, and and that also makes it very resistant to to sort of change because it's taking place at a level uh, below your explicit awareness and often your explicit and even implicit beliefs. Uh, people have a lot of difficulty with with when that process that is normally the seed of their adaptation is also uh, driving them into self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. So right, right. what happens is most of our, right, most of our, uh, so how do I want to put, the, the, one of the biggest jobs your brain is trying to do, as I mentioned earlier, it's constantly trying to figure out of all of the information available to it in the environment, all of the information of long-term memory, and that's a lot of information, mm -hmm. all the possible sequence of actions you can perform, and that's vast. Out of all of that, zeroing in on the relevant information out there in here, putting it together in a relevant way so you know the relevant thing to do right now. And you're doing it right now. Right, and you're doing right, it like right. that. And you don't even know mostly how you're doing it. You've got a sense of you're paying attention here or there. But when we try to build machines that do that, we realize, oh my gosh. Right. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's what you can't do. You can't check all the information because that, that would take the rest of the life of the universe. Somehow your brain, and this is, sounds almost like a Zen Cohen, your brain intelligently ignores most of the information. It doesn't even check it. It ignores it and zeroes in on what's relevant. So you were not considering what was happening to your little right toe right now mm -hmm. until I said it. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, but when I said it, woof, right? Mm -hmm. Now, here's the thing. So doing that, right? Zeroing in on that relevant information so it stands out to you, that's the core of your adaptive intelligence, I, I would argue. But, the ver but notice what that's doing. It's actually biasing me. Yes, I'm yeah. prejudging, right? So I'm actually ignoring. And you, you, you actually know, you can sometimes catch yourself 
when you've ignored the wrong information, you have a aha moment, you realize, oh no, I was looking at it the wrong way. Yep. Now here's yeah. the thing, that insight is amazing, but a lot of times we're not getting those insights. Yeah. A lot of times we're misframing things. It's like that framing is like my glasses. I see by means of it and through it, but precisely because I'm seeing through it, I'm not aware of it. Right. So, right. right? so these lenses are making me adaptive, but they're also potentially distorting mm -hmm. and biasing. Okay. So. And they're just assumed like you're not even like, just like the toe yeah. thing like at, at a point, like you're not thinking about your glasses until you get a smudge on them or there's some kind of yeah. obstruction yeah. or they slip off your nose. You're not thinking about it. 90% of the day. Yeah. Yeah. It's That's just right. There. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it takes, I mean, it, it takes a lot of training to do that. I mean, this is part of only what you're, this is importantly what you're training in meditative mm. practices and mindfulness practices. You're training to step back and look at that framing rather than automatically. And that's why you have to keep practicing because your brain keeps wanting to go, no, and think about something in the world. Exactly. You have to go, no, no, no. And your brain goes, no. And right. And so that's what you're doing the whole time in yeah. meditation for a long time until this stabilizes and you can go, oh, oh, right, right. right. Okay. And you can so, start to see the disconnects. Like we have some practices like uh, fasting and solitude yep, and yep. silence and within Christian tradition. I mean, these are, we're actually, I would argue not to rabbit trail too hard, but with, with COVID and, and all the things that we're going through right now, we are in this sort of, um, this fast from our Sunday mornings and our traditional yep. liturgies and gatherings and things that yes. we would do. Um, which the interesting thing about that, though, is that we're seeing some problems that are accelerated, like you talked about meaning crisis and culture and yeah. in our communities, problems are accelerated right now uh, and amplified. Uh, and some of those problems are new, but a lot of them are problems we just weren't seeing yet or before yeah. because yeah. all of these other like rhythms and things were, I don't want to say blinding us, but sort of just distracting us in that yeah. narrow sense you're talking about. So anyway, keep going. But I think uh, it is, that's part of how it's accelerating through this moment. Yeah, very much. And, and, and you, you introduced, I think, a very helpful metaphor. You talk about these rhythms and these patterns, mm -hmm. right? And so, and we all know it. In fact, people just, people go into therapy. They have a sense that they get caught up in these patterns, but they mm -hmm. don't know why and they don't know how to break out again because that machinery, right? Yeah, yeah. Happening down here. Okay, so, and, and that's the thing. They know in, they have the correct belief. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm not saying belief is irrelevant, but it's insufficient. They yeah, go in yeah, and they know, yeah, yeah. I, I I know this is what I'm, I'm, I keep doing this, right? Mm. But they don't know how to get out of that. They don't know what it would, what, how did, what, what it would be like to be that other kind of person. They don't know the kind of self or, and identity and, and, and the kind of world, right? And, and, and you have to do this, this different kind of process. So let, let's use that as a metaphor. Yeah. Cultures across, sorry, cultures across time and, and, and you know, environmental context, they've developed ecologies of practices for trying to get at this machinery, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing, it's very complex. It's like an organism. It's very complex, very self-organizing. And if you just poke it in one place and try to change it, it's adaptive because it's, yeah. it's running on your adaptive machinery. It knows how to adapt. That's what it, that's what it evolved to do. Mm -hmm. So when you poke on it, it just readapts. And it just re so you have to hit it with a comprehensive, like, you know, ecology of practices that, that are also operating in parallel, in concert, and hitting, right, the, 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 this, you know, yeah. in multiple places, in multiple ways, right? Yeah. And a word that seems to capture that 
cross-culturally, that ecology of practices that is designed to do these two things, alleviate that, that self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior at this profound level, and also enhance that yes. connectedness to self, each other, is wisdom. Mm -hmm. Is wisdom. So what we need, most what cultures need, are wisdom traditions where there are ecologies of practices, there are guides, there are institutions, right? And there are also important symbols and narratives to valorize it, to make it sacred, to make it scalable, to make it accessible to people, to make it practical, right? And so, and then that has to be set within a, you know, with a meta, within, a, within a worldview that homes right. it, valorizes it, legitimates it. But what we don't have is any of that in our culture. For a lot of historical reasons, right, that I go into in detail in the series, we don't have a worldview that situates wisdom, that situates wisdom within an ecology of practices and a homing mythos and a homing community. So, you know, I'll ask my students, where do you go for information? Well, the internet, where do you go for knowledge? Well, sort of science, right? And then well, where do you go for wisdom? And they're like, and they know that they need, they, they, they don't have that word, but they know that they're not, a, they want to be more connected and they, and they want to be less self-deceptive, right? And so when they look to the scientific worldview, they have this amazing worldview. And this is what I, this is my work as a cognitive scientist, right? But you know who doesn't belong in that worldview? Us. Yeah, yeah. We, because we have, we, have a, we have the scientific explanation of all of this, the world and everything, and it is amazing. I'm a scientist. I love science. I'm committed to it. But you know what we don't have a scientific explanation of? How we do science, how we make meaning, how we connect to ourselves, to each other in the world, how we find it meaningful to do science. And truth is ultimately dependent on meaningfulness. Like all of that, like, like those things are presupposed, but not explained within the scientific worldview. And so, when they're presupposed, go, uh, go ahead, when go they're ahead. presupposed, you can get like, you can get going off on deficient versions of them or deformative visions of yes. versions of them and not know any better because it, I can't remember, it was another triformative kind of idea. You talk about perspectival in, in these yeah. different aspects, but the practitioner or the practice version of it, there, there's a lot of wisdom like cashing out there, right? Yes. Um, and the application of this or the lived, like I would say like lived theology in my circles, but like the lived sure. articulation or philosophy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, and, and, and part of that, and I mean, I mean, it, it's completely appropriate that I'm talking to you uh, because part of that is if you look at what has comprehensively done what I'm talking about, comprehensively created uh, ecologies of practices, homed them in a mythos, set them in a tradition, right? And, and, and did it in a way that, right, touched people comprehensively in, in their cognition, their consciousness, their character, their communitas. It's been religion, mm -hmm. right? And, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm not proselytizing. That's not my point. My point yeah. is, right, and, and then we had sort of this deal with enlightenment and modernity, which we sort of, well, we, we, try, we, we sort of separated these two and pretended that, and, and pretended that they had nothing to do with each other. We did that pretense for some very good reasons. We wanted to avoid the religious wars of the of the 17th century, sure, yeah. Europe with blood, right? I, I, these are all these. They're, 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 like I'm not I'm not sort of 
pointing fingers. I'm trying to say, we did these things for, there's a history, and I explained the history. That all of the moves have good reason behind them, but they put us in this place where we, we, we've divorced science from wisdom, religion. We don't longer have a shared religious framework, right? And, and so we're in a situation where many people, the fastest growing group in the census are the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, yes, yeah. right? That, that have no explicit religious commitment. That doesn't mean that they are by and large atheists. In fact, mm -hmm. the opposite. What you find with many of these people if you do, is they're doing sort of an autodidactic religion of me, right? In which they're cobbling together as best they can in a very untutored and often uneducated fashion. This is no criticism of them. It's just how it it's is what it is. Yeah, it's yeah. just what it is, right? Autodidactic, you know, untutored and you know, set ecology of practices and it's suffering from, you know, all of the expected errors you get out of that kind of autodidactic, isolated, fragmented, very mm -hmm. self-centered in a pejorative sense, right, way of trying to build what you need. Uh, and so that is the meaning crisis. Well, uh, there's like a, that's good, that's helpful. Uh, Christian Smith, I believe it was him, uh, coined this phrase out of that idea of the nuns and it gets right to what you're talking about. And he said, if you were to encapsulate who, who are these people and what is their religion, like nuns, right? But he said, what you see so much of, and even those that would say they have an affinity toward Christianity in particular, but yeah. he said, it's Christian therapeutic moralistic deism. So yeah, they, yeah, that's yeah. the relationship. It's, it's Christian, it's therapeutic. It's, and that's, that's, or that's why what they're trying to do is it's some sort yeah. of self therapy or whatever. Yep. Very toward much. that existential angst of just what it is, like you said, to live and to bump up against chaos in your life or world and have to deal with that. And you have this moralistic framework for it, though, that, that then is, it's hard to embody it because it's basically just do's and don'ts. You know, it's hard to yeah. actually embody a do and don't. Um, that's just like the laws of the road. The laws of the road are, they're helpful, but they're not anything about living your life for the most part. They keep people no. alive and breathing, but yeah. they're, the roads are getting them to work or to where their purpose or their family or whatever. The rules are just there to keep them alive in between, if that makes sense. So anyway, no, the, the, uh, the rules are helpful. Like you, maybe earlier you're talking about this idea of necessary, but not sufficient. Right. Yep. Anyway. And then deism, that's, that's the relationship. There's, they're not typically atheists. Like you said, they're not no, necessarily, no, no. uh, more often than not, they're not. Um, but, um, they have, they, they have, it's not a fear of commitment. It's like you said, it's, uh, well, it's a lot of different things, but there's a lot of different reasons why someone wouldn't commit toward one God or the other. There's past issues, there's family stuff, there's yes. the world that we're in, just some of the is what it is of being in this post-enlightenment world. There's all sorts of factors at play, but it is fairly deistic. It's not a, it's not a full-throated baby with the bathwater religions out, but it doesn't know what religion or what to do about it either. Yeah, and I mean, and many of these people populate uh, their personal mythos with all kinds of metaphysical beings of mm. various kinds or others or, or metaphysical forces. Uh, so again, it's not, uh, it, it's not a kind of um, like positivistic, you know, uh, you know, simple, simple, simplistic kind of rejection of anything uh, outside of, uh, of the scientific worldview. Right. Now, one thing people do, you know, especially people who are sort of new atheists um, or who they just sort of, well, that's, you know, that's just due to, you know, human superstition or stuff like that. But I would want to argue that, no, uh, that, that again, is to throw out 
uh, too much of the baby with the bath water. Um, mm. So a lot of the research, and I mean the good psychological, cognitive, scientific, neuroscientific research on, you know, insight and wonder and awe, but also on rationality and wisdom. And again, I've got extensive arguments on all of this. I'm just gesturing towards them. Yeah, yeah. Points towards the, the, the that, you know, it, it looks to, um, draws upon without advocating or, right, but re religious tradition. Um, that's because, again, most of the machinery that we're talking about is not taking place at the propositional level. The reason why the, the nuns is therapeutic because therapy is the one place. I don't think therapy, okay, therapy is really good, okay? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, but I, therapy cannot be the home of wisdom. It is inadequate to that job. But the reason why people want to include something in there is because, as I said, think of the person that goes into therapy. Having the right beliefs, even the true beliefs, is insufficient because that doesn't access the procedural knowing, the perspectival knowing, the participatory knowing, and it doesn't, it doesn't, right? It doesn't give you what you need. That most of the important truths we need are truths that require our transformation in order for us to come into contact with them, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's what therapy does. Therapy says, right, right you, you've got to, first of all, get out of just having the belief true. You've got to get it down here. And then you can't get that truth until you go through some very significant restructuring, right? You have to get new skills. You have to get new perspectives, new ways of finding things salient and relevant. And then you have to basically get new ways of identifying yourself in the world. That's what therapy does, right? Yeah. And so, that accessing that is not a matter of adopting good scientific theory. It, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's insufficient. You can't do that. And so you need something, you need other ways of knowing and other ways of transforming in order to cultivate wisdom. And so that's why um, you know, I, I, I was you know, happy to participate fortunate to participate, we did the, uh, you know, the wisdom task force and we, we just published sort of the consensus paper on all the researchers on wisdom. Um, uh, 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 Igor Grossman headed that up. And, you know, these meta perspectival abilities and all that, that we're talking about, these are central. Uh, and, and, you know, the, 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 the recognition that these were homed uh, uh, within religious traditions, that's, mm -hmm. that's now that's not even, I think, controversial to say, right. right? And so I think that it's not, we shouldn't just criticize the nuns as being irrational or superstitious or something like that. Uh, I, of course, there's going to be self-deceptive. That's my point. There's going to be yeah. self-deceptive patterns in there. But there's also something else in there. There is the machinery that is adaptive, right? And it hungers for what I call religio that sense of connectedness to oneself, to the world, to others, that transforms out that machinery, helps us overcome self-deception, helps us get more connected and more meaning in life. And yeah. so- And in that, that sense, I, they're, they're deeply ahead. human. In that sense, they're just yes. deeply human. It's not, yes. it's not like you said, it's not to dunk on them or to say anything silly like that, that, that yeah, they're just self-deceived. And if they only had, because that gets to the whole thing you're talking about, if they only had the yeah. right ideas, like it's no, it's not that at all. It's um, they have a deeply human longing and there may be some like malnourished 
uh, feeding that's happening there, unfortunately. Um, but um, there, there's ways to go at it otherwise, you know? And, and yes. because it is a human longing, it's a natural thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so no, I, 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 I so that is why, um, that's why I, for example, I call myself a non-theist because uh, I have deep respect, reverence for these, for these wisdom traditions both the ones that have been called overtly Christian, uh, religious, sorry, and the mm -hmm. ones that are, uh, don't, haven't really been called that, but verge on that, like Stoicism. Stoicism, yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, right, yeah. exactly. And, and, and many people, you know, has, I think Buddhism is a religion, but many people in North America want to say it's not. Uh, again, because they have this problem around uh, what we're talking about. So I call myself a non-theist because um, I reject sort of, I'm not, and I don't want to get into a debate with you, Adam, but oh, no. the, the negative part of it is, is that I reject some of what are the shared presuppositions of theism and atheism, but I also think that the religious traditions and the notion of sacredness is actually central to the cultivation of wisdom for all of these arguments that I've been given. Right, right. Yeah, and there's like, a, even down to, if you were to take maybe just, not so much a religious angle, but just more toward the cognitive science level. Like there's something like, um, I don't know if this maps onto what you're talking about, but it reminds me a little bit of like the omnivore's dilemma, right? It's not, yeah. so it's not perfectly this, but the idea being that like, um, as human beings evolved from whatever we were prior to being human beings um, and came down out of trees and all the rest, uh, at some point you had to go explore and try new foods, right? And, and those are people that are maybe more open to new experience, let's say. Yeah. Um, but there is something you develop a sense of the sacred, like there's certain foods that you could, it, this is, I, this yeah. is a, maybe a goofy argument, but eventually something of a sacred, even in food develops out of that where it's like, these foods no. are just good. And they actually make this group, this tribe got smarter and they ate X, Y, and Z food. You know what I mean? It's just like, yeah. you can see it kind of develop even in a yeah. very naturalistic sense. So anyway, I think you're a nuanced guy, man. I don't think you're like, I don't take offense to what you're saying, you know? <laughs> Oh, okay, You're not great. throwing the baby out of the bathwater on the theism, that's for sure. You know. No, no, and I am continually happy. I, I, I will enter into Dialogos with anybody who comes to it with good faith. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I just had a fantastic uh, Dialogos with Paul Vanderclay and Jonathan Pajot, mm -hmm. both of them yeah. committed Christians. And, and, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating to be a hyperbolic. I, 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 I have great affection for these guys. And we all said, like, we're not going to come to a place where they all go, oh, right, John, you're right. Or I go, yes, Paul, I'm going to become a Protestant. Yes, Jonathan, I'm going to become uh, Eastern Orthodox, right? But what happens is all three of us, after we were done, said we all came to a place together that we couldn't have got to on our own, mm -hmm. right? And it was a place that puts us more in, gives us more religio, and perhaps all, made us all a little bit more wiser, gave us a little bit more taste of what individual and collective wisdom is like. And I think this is sorely needed. So I, that's why I'm talking with you. Anybody that comes in good, for, look, look, Adam, if people can go back into Christianity or remain within Christianity or whatever, and find how to, you know, uh, you know revivify for themselves, the ecology of practices so that they get a, you know, a comprehensive way of responding to the meaning crisis, then do it, do it, yeah. right, yeah. right, do it. However, 
I do think, and, and I think, I think I'm speaking fairly, and if I'm not, please, but I think sure. a lot of people who want, who do even, let's say, let's take Christianity because you're Christian, right? They still find problems of how to, and this is what Paul and Jonathan say to me, how do I take the language of the, of the sacredness as found within Christianity, and how do I fit it into this world? Because mm -hmm. the, the scientific worldview and technology are not going away, right? Yeah. And, you know, and if we didn't have that science right now, we'd be in a lot worse place because of COVID, right? So we, like trying to pretend that that's not there and it's not insinuating into the very fabric of our time and our life, that's not an option for people. So part of what hopefully I can help people do is people who, and you know, and I, and I do have also deep discussions with Muslims, et cetera, mm -hmm. right? Is, you know, can I afford a language and perhaps maybe being non-theistic is the past for this job. Can I afford a language that genuinely allows people to do this bridging, allows mm -hmm. them to re-talk and rethink and re-experience, re-symbolize some of the furniture of Christianity so that they rehome the world again? Like it, it fits for, within the, you know, the scientific worldview in, again, like the way it did at one time, right? Uh, I, in the past. Yeah, and even in the past where, say, our, our scientific worldview, if you were to, it's hard, you can't, it's hard to do this, but if you were to say, like, our body of knowledge was X, you know, whatever that yeah. was for science, yeah. you know, and like you're saying, like, there, there, there seems to be a time where, whether the harmonization or even the dance, like you talked about earlier, the symphony yeah. of hard sciences and these things that we understand at like a very physical and just very wooden or literal level. And then, and I know it's because there's quantum stuff. I know it's not purely <laughs> wooden, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, at yeah, this yeah. like studied level, especially back then. And then you, you also have this uh, experiential, this like narrative, this embodied idea of yep. Yep, yep. living a life, right? Yeah. All this stuff. Um, but there, there was a time uh, when those two seemed closer together. Right. Yeah. And, and and that's the point that I want to make right now. Right? It, it seems natural to us because we have been enculturated for several centuries to think of these things as yes. at best orthogonal and at worst as oppositional. Mm -hmm. But if you go, and this is what I do in the in Awakening for the Meaning Crisis, if you go back, if you go back, you know, no, no, no. At one time, the Wisdom Project and the Knowledge Project were wedded together. And the university as an institution and the monastery as an institution were wedded yeah. together. And this, and, and many cultures. If you like, if you go into like uh, Asiatic cultures, you'll find you know the, the 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 wisdom, you know, the religious side of the wisdom project and, and the and the knowledge project are still you know intertwined and inter. Yeah. So it is not natural or inevitable that they have to be set against each other. Hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. Totally agree. And let's. Uh, so let's. Um... I don't know if the distinction there would be knowledge and wisdom, but maybe at a very simplistic way, it might be something like that. Um, so, and, and I don't know exactly, well, I've heard you talk about wisdom a lot, but a very simple version of it is something like knowledge applied or knowledge embodied or something like sure. that, right? Um, so do you mind fleshing out um, at an individual level, I think we could say that's something like we talked about science, right? But then the application of living a life in light of science yeah. or whatever, but also these narratives and these other like sacred things that's great but at the that's at the level of the individual you were talking about even this conversation you had with paul and jonathan 
this yeah. idea of almost a collective knowledge that can transform or can cash out yeah. into collective yeah. wisdom, right? So let's firm this up. This is an idea you've been talking about for a bit. Like I said, this is a yeah. big yeah. part of what I'm trying to do with these conversations yeah. anyway. So yeah. let's unpack that a little bit. All right. So let's, let's, let's do that. So let's, let's build up from the inside. Okay. That, yeah. So I don't know if you, I, I had a, through Rebel Wisdom, I had a wonderful conversation with Ian Lil Gilchrist and people sort of know, you know, you have a light, a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere. And they, they find different things. They have different ways of finding the world. They find different patterns of relevance and salience. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. And, and yet they, they, and the reason why we have these two hemispheres is that they deal with different kinds of problems. The left hemisphere with sort of well-defined problems, the right hemisphere with very ill-defined problems, and 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 you and you're constantly moving back. When you have a moment of insight, it's when active, it's when activity switches dramatically from left to right, yeah, and then yeah. back from right to left. Okay, so let's take that. So let's take the idea that what you actually you actually have right. It, I mean, you actually have distributed cognition. You have two. If you allow me some mechanical language, because it's yeah, just, it's, it's, it's my, helpful. It's, it's it's my. You have you have you have sort of two. You have two machines, right? And they're actually working together. Two cognitive machines. Well, and and that's actually better than a single one, right? And mm -hmm. and and now, let's do it. There's all now. There's you and I, right? And so, and this and this this is powerful because our greatest adaptation is culture, right? So individually, we are pathetic. We're pathetic animals. We teeter around on two legs with all of our vital organs exposed. We have no teeth or claws. We're not particularly fast. We're not particularly strong, right? We're not particularly yeah. agile, right? We're, 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 we're pretty messed up. Right. But you get a bunch of us coordinated together with some pointy sticks and dogs and we can kill anything on the planet because Long before the internet networked computers together and released the power of distributed computation, culture networked people together and released the power of distributed cognition. Most of our problem solving is done in concert mm -hmm. with other people. Look at, look, you and I are talking, I didn't make this camera. You didn't make your computer. You're not running the electrical grid. I'm not running the electrical grid. We're not running Zoom. We're not running the, in we're not running. <clears throat> I didn't invent English. You didn't invent English. I didn't make these clothes. You didn't make it. Right, look, right, yeah. see? For real, okay? yeah. So, this, we, uh, so we have this, uh, and I'm using this term in a technical sense, but I want a bit of bite to it. We have this bullshit about individualism, right? Yeah. That's not the same thing as individual responsibility. That's a moral point. I'm talking about individualism, which is a political idea and ideology, right? And the point about it is it really, it really misleads us. Most of our cognition is done in what's called an extended and embedded fashion. Those are two of the E's from 4E cognitive science. Most of our cognition is done in distributed cognition. And what, what that means is that, so um, let me use this analogy. Your intelligence, use each hemisphere has an intelligence, but there's an emerging intel there's an emergent intelligence when the two of them are coordinated and cooperated and coupled and networked together yes yes there's an yeah, intelligence yeah. above and beyond right same thing when you and i are networked together or when a bunch of us are networked together we have an emergent intelligence of the group the collective intelligence of distributed cognition that is something above and beyond right the our individual intelligences it's it gives us a kind of 
cognitive power for solving problems that we can't solve on our own. And we evolved, we like many organisms are social, but we evolved this special thing, right? Culture, which is systems of meaning and meaning in life that basically are designed to network us together, right? And, mm. and, and access all of that machinery we, you and I have been talking about, but do it collectively and bring that to bear on collective problem on, on, on big problems that we can't solve individually. Now, here's the thing. Let's go back and then I'll, I'll stop for a second. I'll give you a chance to respond. So let's use the analogy. You have the individual and the individual's intelligence is making them adaptive, but that, that very same intelligence that is helping them to solve the problems is also making them susceptible to self-deception, self-destructive behavior, making right. them foolish, if you'll allow me a more traditional word. And then what you need is you need to use that intelligence to acquire, right, from, uh, from a wisdom tradition, from distributed cognition, by the way, you need to acquire practices, an ecology of practices. So you use your intelligence to acquire an ecology of practices that actually transforms your intelligence mm -hmm. into something that is much less self-deceptive, mm -hmm. right? And then you can, and you can keep bootstrapping that, right? And that bootstrapping is wisdom. But just like you can do that for in the individual intelligence, right, within individual cognition, we need to bootstrap collective intelligence into collective wisdom. We need to find the ways in which we can share right, ecologies of practices within networks, like so we need we networks of ecologies and practices, networks of communities, so that we can find the self-deceptive, self-destructive patterns within collective intelligence and then liberate to the degree we can that collective intelligence so that it can enhance wisdom and meaning in life collectively. Mm -hmm. The problems we're facing, like the meaning crisis, can't be solved by individual cognition. Mm -hmm. No, that's great. Yeah, and, and especially, I love that distinction of, between individualism and individual responsibility. One is yes. imperative and one is uh, it's, it's, it's a bastardized thing. It's not helpful. It's yeah. actually deformative. It's, it's not good. Um, yes. yeah, yeah. And we live in a world and culture now where, especially because we're networked in all the ways in the, the real physical machinery ways you're talking about of like just an internet and all the rest. Um, we can quickly tribalize and fool ourselves that we are being groupish when we're not right. Uh, I mean, right. We, we are, and we aren't like, we're trying to do it right now, but you know what I mean? Like we can do it into this individualistic form that is a pipeline of individualism over and over again. And, uh, yeah, it's just that that is deformative and all the rest. And there's, I don't know if you have a comment on that, but a thought I had when you were talking about that is there's this idea, you know, and this is something you'll get because Jonathan Paggio will talk about it a lot, that Genesis, it's, it's a story, but it's, it's really a pattern, you know, and it's a lot of it's a pattern yeah. for being, let's say the original Genesis creation narratives and poetry that it is. Um, it, you have this, this spirit, this creative force energy, you know, hovering over the tohu vavohu or the chaotic waters, right? And up right. out of that comes creation, up out of that comes habitable order and like in shalom and like peace and harmony between all the environments and things as for human flourishing to happen, let's say. Um, and there's something about that where when you were talking about the, um, how things sort of stack up, not just in our own head, but then you have people that are essentially playing the two hemispheres, I mean, they're not that, but they're almost caricatures of the hemispheres out yeah. loud in front of you. And they're giving you something that's like, whoa, I've never saw that. I've never seen that. I've never like thought like that before. Or, or yeah, that maps onto reality. And they're almost 
you know what I mean? Mimicking your internal yep. dialogue. Yep. And then it just, it builds and stacks and stacks. There's something about that though, especially at the level of, I know the chaos order distinction can be too simplistic sometimes, but it yeah, is simple yeah. and helpful that you have to be, especially if you're in one of those deformative patterns, you have to be disrupted in some way, shape or form uh, oh, yeah. for something new to come out. Right. Yep, and so um, that disruption can be choosy and intentional or whatever, but there has to be some sort of disruption. But if you're in that tunnel vision uh, vibe, that, that tribalistic, like individualistic flow of like information and confirmation and all the rest, uh, you're not, you're not going to be disrupted. You cannot be disrupted. And you're only going to be perpetually, I mean, you might be lucky if you're getting formed in a good way, but you're more likely deformed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think what you just said is, is, is perfect. Adam. I think, you know, I've done work on it. I've given presentations at conferences about it. So disruptive strategies are central to insight. Like, like the disruptive strategies are basically, Oh, right. They, they, right. Yeah. It's, if this, if the transparency of this is never disrupted, I don't know that it's distorting my vision, right? I have to disrupt it. And so, you, you know, you, 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 going back into the shamanic heritage, you have disruptive strategies. And they, if you look in the shamanic tradition, and they persist even with, as you mentioned, within Christianity, you have all kinds of disruptive strategies like fasting. And I was saying that, you know, the disruptive strategies are designed to do this, to get you to stop looking through the transparent and look at it rather than looking through it. Right. And then, and also, you know, transform it. Right. And then you also have to see something new. Right. You have to do all of these things. Um, I was mentioning that, uh, you know, if you're doing when people, the aha moment, um, in order to get people into insight, you have to break the inappropriate frame and make space for the new frame. So if you're giving somebody like an insight problem, this is work of Stefan and Dixon. And it's on a like a computer screen, and they're trying to solve it, and they're impassing, and they can't solve it. Actually, making jiggling the screen or putting some static in will often trigger an insight because you you want that disruptive strategy, uh, and so disruptive strategies are very very important. The thing about them again though is that they're dangerous, right? So right, let me right. give you a place where this is coming in, and it has, and I think if this is the appropriate word, it has spiritual significance to it. We're going through the psychedelic revival right now, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, largely because the science didn't—I mean, the science was repressed like everything else. But right. the science has come back. I do work on it myself, um, and, and and we're starting to see, you know, the, the power of these psychedelics. Let's go back to one something we talked about earlier: the way they can empower therapeutic intervention. You get people who have, you know, treatment-resistant depression or addiction. You give them a psychedelic experience, or even better within that, if you can, if they've got some training, they can actually have a mystical experience, and then you can get these. And with with a mystical experience, you can even change people's personality characteristics yeah. in a long-standing fashion. You can break again. You can access this machinery that belief is can't get, that's inaccessible to the belief level, and you can bring about a profound transformation. But you don't want to just be doing this. Like ad hoc, you need to do it within a therapeutic context because the, you because you've got to have when you throw in that disruption, you've got to have right. You have to have good practice in reframing strategies. You have to have good awareness of what transformation feels like and looks like. You you have to have you know a lot of training in self deception so that you don't get the you don't 
you know, because if you're just thrown into this disruption, you don't have any of those skills, you might find the right pattern, but you also might go down a horrible rabbit hole, right? Mm -hmm. And so the disruptive strategies, again, need to be properly housed and homed with, with, within an ecology of practices that is training people on, in insight, training them to be more rational, to look for self-deception, uh, training them with, you know, reframing and transframing skills. All of that has to happen. Yeah. No, that's helpful. And uh, I, this is, it's attributed to him. I think he actually said it, but I think it's, I'm probably misapplying it like everyone else, but there's this quote from Carl Jung where he talks about like, beware of wisdom you didn't earn, you know? And that's yeah, something yeah. to the idea of what you're talking about with like, and you could say, you know, there's a principle in there, even with like our, our, so our, a lot of our pain medications, you know, the opiate crisis that we're having and going through that's been longstanding. Um, it's contributing to the meaning crisis or participating in the meaning crisis. And it's, it's a, uh, it's, it's obviously doing it mostly through misuse. I mean, you know, and, and not, not just, I don't just mean, again, to dunk on people that are misusing it. It's a complicated thing. And doctors, part, they participated too in contributing to the misuse and pharmacists and totally. all sorts of people, you know, totally. and, and it, in that sense, this is something maybe we can um, kind of hone in for closing up here. There's collective intelligence, there's collective wisdom, you know, and this is, we're trying to do some of this right now. But there's also this idea of like collective deformation as something I would yep. call it or something like that. So, so um, what are these, what are those patterns or what are those avenues and how do we avoid so, that or, yeah. Yeah, well, let, let, let's pick up on that. Uh, so let's do addiction. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned it, it's great. Okay, so I talked about this. I talked about how your, this is how intelligence works, right, right? And, and, uh, and, and my friend Mark Lewis, right? He, he's one of the world experts on uh, addiction. And he's basically, and not him, but a whole, I've been to conferences, a whole bunch of people have been challenging sort of the disease model of addiction and replaced it with what's called the learning model of addiction. This is, it's a really interesting kind of learning. Um, and again, it's gonna, you're gonna see the parallels to the therapeutic context, and the religious context, and that's intended by me. I'm trying to, right? Yeah. So what, what's, what's Mark's model of addiction was what he calls reciprocal narrowing. Okay, so let's say I'm sort of in pain and I take some alcohol, standard, okay? And that impairs me. It gets rid of the pain, but it also reduces my cognitive flexibility. That ability to, by the way, like shift between my hemispheres, zoom in right. and zoom out, do this. All of that, that's cognitive flexibility. Notice these, all of, we use these metaphors of movement because, and so I'm using a similar metaphor of cognitive flexibility. So some of my cognitive flexibility goes down, right? Which means my ability to zero in on what's relevant and solve my problems in the world goes down. So the world narrows a bit. Now the world narrows, there's fewer options. And then I internalize my world. Everybody internalizes the right. world. And then that constrains me and I now get more limited, right? And then not, see what's happening? We got a vicious cycle here. I start to narrow, which narrows my world, which narrows me, which narrows my world. And you get like this reciprocal narrowing until this is what addiction is. You've learned that you can't be any other than you are and the world can't be any other than it is. There are no options and no future for you, hmm. right? And that's addiction. Hmm. That's addiction, reciprocal narrow, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but there's the opposite. And this is one of the core things that wisdom does. 
And I mentioned this to Mark and when, he, when, he, when I said, but there should be the opposite. He went, oh, right? Reciprocal <laughs> opening. Yeah, I yeah. can, what if I can transform my identity, loosen it up, get some cognitive flexibility, see some options in the world. And then from the world, like from you and in discussion with you, I get to a place of my cognition that I couldn't get before. And then Dialogos, it reciprocally opens up. The world opens up, I open up. That's, that's Plato's anagoge, the ascent out of the cave. Yeah. Okay, now, just like individuals can be addicted and be engaged in a reciprocal narrowing, cultures, groups of people can be addicted and engaged in reciprocal narrowing. And you can even see the two reverberating off each other. So remember I said how the brain helps you zero in on relevant information because you can't check it all? And that's a very, so there's a lot of adaptive things. So an adaptive thing your brain has is it tends to look for information to justify its position. Now, this is interesting. Why? Because, and this is what the research is showing. Individually, that tends to make me subject to bias. I tend to, it's called the confirmation bias. I only yeah. look for information that confirms my belief. That's that reciprocal narrowing. So I tend to ignore information that would challenge my belief. And I, oh, right. But if you are doing it and I'm doing it, and then we enter into good faith dialogue, if we're committed to the idea that you can correct me and I can correct you, not just here, but here, we're committed yeah. to that, then our biases actually go from being negative things to be being self-correcting. So most, you know, remember I said that most of our cognition is done in distributed cognition. Most of it should be done because we actually reason better in groups than we yeah. do as individuals. Okay, but, but what can we do? Well, here I am doing reciprocal narrowing, and then I can use social media and not actually enter into good faith dialogos. What I can do is find other people that share my confirmation bias, and we can look like we are, we can pretend that we're doing distributed cognition, but actually all we're doing is echo chambering and then we're getting addicted and we're now as a group and we're speeding it up with each other and with the technology. And now we have this huge and powerful and accelerating reciprocal narrowing and it might be around some crazy conspiracy theory, mm -hmm. for example. That, that. I mean, I, that's, that's a perfect example, John. I, I've been talking, um, and that, that's a, a really smart way of putting it. I've been talking about this idea where I've, I've been saying with, with tribalism, but especially the, um, the confirmation bias idea, right? Yeah. That in, in even just growing up, um, I'm, I'm sort of a, I don't know what, a, what my generation's called as far as the internet. We got the internet when I was like a teenager, right? right. So like I had a good chunk of my life without it. Anyway, um, I remember like as a kid, like someone would say something really goofy, strange, or just inappropriate in a group. And there's, there's bad versions of this, but there is that sort of social shaming that's like verbal, yeah. but there's also just the physiological, like you see people, yeah. Yeah. you can't help but repulse at like something that sounds gross or weird, right? And yeah. you recognize that when you're seeing it happen, like you yeah. see that. Um, but, but now uh, there, there's essentially, you're able to <laughs> group yourself with a group of people that are either not choosing to re react in that way or whatever it is. And you can, like you said, you can get into like these, groups uh, that it's convinced that because it's this network and it's vast and all the rest, but it could be around the silliest, stupidest, like craziest conspiracy or whatever, you know? And it can even happen. Um, I've seen this with, um, do, I, so part of, the, part of where you came on my radar was like through um, 
Jordan Peterson, which is probably a lot of people's story, right? Um, but I've seen this happen where in, he has his issues with the radical individualism piece that you're talking about, I think, in some respects. But yep. the um, I see this happen even within that little IDW club thing that yep. started. And it was like they were softly for it and softly against it. But it, it, has, it can have its own version. It's not a dumb conspiracy. I think a lot of the things they're up to are great. But it has this uh, sort of ethos. It's like an in-group, out-group. It's kind of strict. You know what I mean? Yes, and uh, it, it's it's and it's accelerated, like you said, because of technology. And anyway, yeah, flow of information. It's just all yeah. But the technology isn't innocent. It's manipulative. So let's yeah. let's bring that. So let's got we've got reciprocal narrowing, and then we've got a political climate, and these are interacting with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, that right has replaced opponent processing. Opponent processing is like what the left and right hemisphere. They work in different ways, but they pull, but they're committed to working together. Right? Yes. right. And so they're, 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 they are, they are more committed to self-correcting through the other than they are to defeating the other. It would be a disaster if your left brain came to totally right defeat and dominate your, your right hemisphere, etc. Right. Mm -hmm. But we have a culture that has also moved from opponent processing into adversarial process. And then we have social media that works by priming you. I'm using that in the psychological sense, giving you lots of implicit cues, connect, making certain kinds of information salient and appear relevant to you so that you are driven towards right adversarial processing. Because if you can get into conflict and be outraged, like I don't, we are in danger, we're in a dangerous place because outrage is, is, is it's, it's, it's on the edge of being considered a virtue. It's a social That's, currency. For yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we've got that, right? We've got all of, all of this is, right, driving polarization, right? The, the, the political machinery and it's embedded and they're inter, it's interwoven with, you know, basically the, the market co-opting of social media to drive us into uh, outrageous behavior, Right. And, and so you get another thing, you get polarization and adversarial processing and winner take all. And so what happens is the dis distributed cognition loses. Like, so when you get things like reciprocal narrow and they play off against each other, yes, the yeah, reciprocal yeah. narrowing and the polarization, they start to reinforce and see what I mean. You're getting this, there's these patterns. Remember I said the, the self-deceptive behaviors, these complex patterns that take on a life of their own. That's what's happening right now. That's mm -hmm. what's happening. And, and, and it, it not only happens within people's cognition, it happens between people powerfully. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's excellent. And this is where um, I, I, I'm trying to, and at the level of, and you've been helpful in this and others for sure, even, even those that aren't as warm to, like even some of Sam Harris or people that aren't as warm to religion. He is, he's warm to like tooling religion in like a meditative way, but, but he's not, he's, he was part of that new atheist crew for a bit. Anyway, I say all that to say uh, I've been I've been trying to integrate a lot of the things you and others are talking about in these different spheres because even as you were talking right there, it's like this. I keep saying it as tension. And I don't know if it's exactly the right word, but there are things that are held in tension essentially, and like at the center of the tension is like being or whatever, you know. And there's yeah. something to the idea of like the way our mind. This I'm not trying to get too woo about this either because I know there's lots of like quarks or little anomalies that you could say don't map onto this but our mind our lungs our heart even down to our like physical and then you know which becomes like a phenomenological way to understand the world 
these things are always like giving and taking life basically like our heart and our lungs are giving and taking life up here in our head there is this give and take battle but then i see people as i think i think this is i think you can get this from personality studies there are some people that are let's just say more open to new experiences and some that are yep. more naturally yep. conservative. We talked about omnivores dilemma, same yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. Right? right? And you get a give and take there in the outside. And, and yeah, as we strip away and as we tribalize in those ways you're talking about, we lose, we lose that at the communal level, but I think it deforms and I don't know about our heart, but it definitely deforms our mind and that ability yep, to do the right. tension living and give and take. Right. I think what you said was not woo woo. I, I, in fact, the work I do on, on sort of the nuts and bolts of relevance realization is dynamical systems actually work by that, by having these, the, the, this opponent processing, mm-hmm. all right? Uh, the, the, these, you know, you think, uh, let, let's use one example. We talked about out, outrage, right? Yeah. So one of the things you've got to constantly evolve is your level of arousal, how aroused you should be. And that doesn't just mean sexual arousal. It means how about metabolic, right? And so you should be fairly aroused right now, right? If you were just sort of like, right, that's not good. But you shouldn't be like hyper aroused either. So, right, and so what's doing that? Well, what you have is you have your sympathetic system. No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and speak both accurately and metaphorically at the same time. It's heavily biased to interpreting as much of the world as it can as a reason for you to raise your level of arousal. So it's, it's, it's got a confirmation bias. It's constantly, oh, yeah, 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 that, that, yeah, Ray, right? And then you got your parasympathetic system, right? And these are both part of the autonomic, self-governing, self-ruling. That's what autonomic, right, nervous system. And then you have your parasympathetic system and it's heavily biased. It's, it's, it's really over-interpreting, oh no, no, that means you should relax, you should calm down. And they are, the, and they, they're, these biased machines working opposite to each other, but they're, they're, they're not adversarial, right? Mm-hmm. They're opponent processing. And what they're doing is they're constantly pushing and pulling each other, constantly in tension. And that tension means that moment by moment, your level of arousal is constantly being self-corrected, self-calibrating, and evolving its fittedness. It's a kind of relevance realization. And notice it's happening below your level right? Again, of what's accessible, yeah. etc. It's unfolding and it's doing what your brain is finding relevant and salient. And it, what it's doing is dist- it's, it's doing something like distributed cognition. It's got these two biased perspectives, but they are committed to each other and correcting each other continuously. So that notion of tension, you know, it goes all the way down and all the way up. That's, yeah. I think yeah. what you said is actually very astute. That's why I've always been very attracted to, uh, to Tillich as a theologian, uh, precisely mm-hmm. because he emphasizes, I think, I think correctly, you know, seeing that wisdom has to do with not trying to resolve these tensions, yes. but live within them creatively. Mm-hmm. You know, he talk, think about what we've been talking about earlier. He talks about, you know, the, 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 the ongoing and irresolvable, and you shouldn't try and resolve it, tension uh, between individuation and participation, right? Between your individual cognition and distributed cognition. And, and, and you have drives both ways. And if you overemphasize one or the other, right, you can get, you can get the tyranny of a collective totalitarianism, but you can also mm. get the atomic chaos of too much individualism, yes. right? Yeah. Right. Or, you know, the, the constant tension between justice and compassion. Mm-hmm. And that's why I brought that up in the discussion I had with Jonathan and Paul, like the parables 
are, are they're not narratives. Well, I would argue with Sally McFag, they're not narratives because they have, unlike a, a story comes to a resolution, yes. a parable yes. has an unresolvable tension within it. Like the prodigal son, if you resolve it, if you ever try to resolve it, well, justice should always triumph over compassion. No, no, compassion. Like there is no resolution. Sometimes justice, sometimes compassion, sometimes the father, sometimes the elder son, sometimes because you're all of them in your life. Sometimes you're the father, sometimes you're the elder son, sometimes you're the, the prodigal son. And if you over-identify with any one of those or one of those virtues rather than the other, you will lose your humanity. So I think that's why I'm attracted uh, to theology uh, mm -hmm. like Tillich and, and Sally McFagg when she talks about you know, uh, you know, doing theology in parables. I think that it preserves the, the I like to use the Greek word tonos, because it has more of a mm -hmm. sense of that creative tension um, yes. to it. Yeah, and I would say that so much of this is so good. And I want to wrap up with one more question, but just a thought on that, that so much of that, so that there was the, the let's say the, we're in like a post-enlightenment phase or whatever we are now, but, but that genesis out of the enlightenment had so many gifts and benefits through it. But it also, I mean, one of the negatives is the disassociative like ideas with religion, right? Um, but some of that, I mean, some of that's rooted in, there's some like just very natural things that happen too. Like the invention of the printing press was this like, oh, yeah. you couldn't have the Protestant uh, movement without the printing press, right? Because it just wouldn't even be one of their biggest bones to pick wouldn't have been picked, you know? And then you, uh, but with that, you get this idea. It also accelerates or facilitates the individualism or the individualized religious experience. Whereas before, there in a pre-literate culture, especially, it's an oral tradition, and or you have the people who are literate who are sharing, and it's uh, and there's a lot of give and take there, which just gets lost when you can do it on your own, quote unquote. You know, yeah, um, yeah, it does, and it also the idea of. Uh, like literacy is very powerful as a psychotechnology, and then mm -hmm. when you when you when you attach it to, um, like the, the like the printing press, and of course we're go and the analogy is well said. We're going through something analogous right now, of course, with the internet and social media, yeah. and you know we didn't get the, the the way. I mean, a psychotechnology like literacy itself just permeates your cognition and transforms it in ways you're not going to. And then if you take that and you ramp it up. With an, uh, with a physical technology like the printing press, like the like you said, the Protestant uh, Reformation, it, it, psychotechnologies when they're linked to technologies, right? They alter distributed cognition in mm -hmm. profound ways, way beyond what's intent or deliberate or designed, and then they permeate into and transform individual cognition and uh, and and. and consciousness again in ways beyond design or intent or deliberation just profound uh, and, and we're going through that right now uh, again we we won't know we won't know what we're going to be like uh, think about how much time had to pass after the you know after the protestant reformation and the enlightenment and then when we you know and then the romantic response and then finally we get to a place where now we're looking back and we're you know the, the, and this is one of the benefits of the postmodern critique Right, it's like we're finally seeing. Oh, now we're starting to finally understand the consequences mm -hmm. of the printing press, right? And yes, what that yeah. what that meant, and how how so many things that were before the printing press, as you just said, so unnatural to human beings, people came to feel them as completely natural, like doing this on my own, self help. I can do it on my own, and it's my own. Like it's like 
You couldn't even imagine. Yeah. Or, 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 or another example. Uh, you know, people don't realize that our notions of individualism are based on the invention of the chimney. Because before, when you have the hearth, people have to sleep communally. And sexuality right. and thing, the things that we consider like quintessential things that must be quintessentially done in private couldn't be. They literally couldn't be because yeah. people would freeze, right? And so, right, you have hearth, right? And, yeah. and then the chimp, like, again, the, the transformations that the, the way this stuff permeates through us is it, it, profound. And, and that's an awesome connection to make. It's not just yeah. technology and then the rest of life or whatever, or science and the rest of life. They are, they inevitably will overlap. It's just if we can see it, you know what I mean? If we can see it. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean when, when, I, when I go, when I keep saying, like, not to you, 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 you yeah, know, yeah. you're a very charitable host, but when I keep repeating, like, so the, the scientific worldview and its technology and the, like, it's, 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 it's unavoidable. I'm not, I, I'm not into scientism. Like that, to me, that's to make a mistake. That's to confuse our current theories with reality, which no good scientist would do, right? A good, all scientists right. are fallibilists, right? right? Uh, but on the other hand, on the other hand, I'm a scientist, right? And, and I really, you know, science is this, science is one of the most powerful ways we've developed for dealing with self-deception. That's why the self, that's why it arose. It's a psychotechnology that you practice in distributed cognition in order to overcome powerful patterns of self-deception. And then that empowers us both psychotechnologically. Think about how often you use graphing and other things in your way, even in your way of thinking, right? It empowers us psychotechnology and it empowers us technologically. It permeates us. It's insinuated into the very fibers of our metaphysics and our being. Simply saying, no, I reject that, right? That's not an option, or I would argue that there's a deep, you're being deeply disingenuous if you try to take that as your option. So mm -hmm. for me, um, I think one of the things we could do is to, we, I think one of the things we need to do is we need to bring back the wisdom traditions so that we are more aware. I mean, part of what wisdom is, is like, Understanding is different from knowledge. Knowledge is having evidence. Understanding is grasping the relevance of your knowledge. Yes, See how yeah. it's relevant, right? Relevant to your life, relevant to other lives, relevant even to other pieces of knowledge or other kinds of knowing, right? And so insight and understanding are needed, right? In order to deal with the, the way in which we are putting ourselves through just a tremendous process of self-transformation. And, and I mean that individually and collectively. And if we don't, if we don't put spirituality and science back together, we're in deep trouble. We're in really, really deep trouble. That's good. Well, uh, I know we need to get you going, and I had one more question, but you just actually you inadvertently answered it with what you just said. So yeah, I, I think we are in trouble if we don't pull those things back together, or at least find where they mesh and overlap and offset. And that idea of tension that we talked about, right? In so many yeah. ways. So. Um, uh, this is helpful. Is there anything you didn't plug? Like, well, well, is there like links or anything people should follow? We'll put them in the show notes, but. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, one of the things we didn't get to talk to, to at, uh, about at length, but we alluded to it, we were exemplifying it. I mean, Dialogos isn't just dialogue, right? Dialogos is, the Logos is, well, we, well you know this from the Christian tradition, right? It, it's a pattern of intelligibility that takes on a life of its own. So, mm -hmm. but 
people know what I'm talking about, right? When you've gotten into a conversation and the conversation takes on a life of its own, right? And, the, and your insights fuel my insights and they empower each other. And we don't necessarily even agree, right? We, we, we will preserve the tonos between us, but it's a creative tonos and it's that self-correction. And we both get to places together where we couldn't get to on our own. That's what I mean by dialogos. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the thing is, one of the things that's springing up, I mean, I'm putting together with Christopher Mazzapietro, putting together an anthology of many of the people who are like independently, they're generating these new practices of dialectic and dialogos, mm-hmm. right? And all over the world and, and communities are springing up. And so there is the, the, this, this happening. And so in addition to paying attention to, you know, you know, awakening from the meeting crisis, right? Take a look at voices with Rebeki. Take a look at uh, many of the instances where like, even what happened with you know, with Paul Paul Vanderclay yeah. and Jonathan Pajona, like it's it like sorry, don't take the. I hope this is not hubristic. I'm trying to role model and exemplify mm-hmm. because above and beyond what I say, giving people the tools so they can practice it for themselves is much much more important. And so, so when you're watching, especially the 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 whole all the all those dialogos, right? Pay attention to the manner and also keep your eye open for the book, out for the book when it comes out. Uh, yeah. Because I think moving from adversarial processing back into dialogos mm-hmm. is really, really central um, to getting individual and collective wisdom going in, a, in, in concert together. Yeah. And I would love if that, uh, whether it's when the book's coming out or whatever, to have a conversation about that idea of Theologos, because that is, that is even, even down, John, to the point of where I'm trying to encourage in the in-house here within my right. tribe of Christians and Protestants that I am, um, trying to encourage so much of our Bible reading, let's say, for example, is sort of look at the information and try and get it in here, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's not... It, it, it shouldn't be that. It should be a conversation with the text and then a conversation of the application yeah. of the text out here and, and yeah. at the interpersonal with the world and all the rest, right? So it's, but all of that is through literal conversation, talking, but it's also the dance of practice, of doing yeah. and being, yeah. right? It's all yeah. of that. And so um, I think there's, there's a lot to be talked about there. Maybe these ideas, mimetic reasoning and some of this feedback loop stuff you were talking about. And I think there's well, a lot there. So, yeah, I would like to talk good. about, uh, I'd love to talk about, uh, dialogos and, you know, Lexio Divina, yes. uh, uh, and, and, uh, philosophical contemplative companionships, uh, all these things. And, uh, yeah, let's, yeah. Let, by all means, let's talk again. I'd very much like to talk about that. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. We're Protestants, but we do, we do Lectio too. You know, we do, we do Great. some different stuff. Good. It's good. 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 Yeah. good. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I appreciate it, John. This is really helpful. This was helpful to firm up and kind of expand and enlarge, I would say the idea of collective wisdom or this group of, you know, this kind of internet little tribe thing I'm trying to do of just a wisdom collective of people who have some thoughtful things to say. So thanks for helping firm up the definition and helping it get out there in the first place. It's good. Well, well, well thank you, Adam. And, uh, yeah, maybe, what, maybe let's uh, let's do our next conversation and we'll reverse host. I'll host you and sure, uh, sure. But I'll, I'll put this up on Voices with Raveki as well. Awesome, I appreciate you, man. This is good.